Our Father in heaven, we ask that that would be our prayer this morning, that you would teach us, Lord, obedience and true humility, God. Would you make this man humble before you this morning? God, would you humble our hearts, each of us individually, and us as a church together? God, we ask for you to do that this morning. Would you do that by the words that we've already heard, by the songs that we've already heard, and by this word that we will hear together this morning, God? Be in this time. uh, Humble us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This week is Apocalyptic Anthropology Part 2. That sounds really scary. That just basically means that when uh, Father Ben is away, the curates play. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Pastor in training right here, guys. I'm Chris. It's nice to meet you. So I want to begin with an analogy of a car, okay? An analogy of a car. So I think all of us would agree that when we're driving someplace, one of the main goals of driving a car is not to crash the car, okay? Not to crash the car individually or run into someone else, okay? So if if we're going to use this analogy of the car, and the car is a human person, okay? The car is a human person we, we go to the disciplines of sociology and psychiatry and the disciplines of psychology and all these other things to figure out what it means to not crash into each other, right? We figure out all the problems that we have interpersonally with each other. We, we try to paint lines on the road so that we stay in our lanes and we don't kill each other, okay? This, this is one of the aspects of our fallen human condition, okay? All right, so keep this analogy of the car in your head. If you are a mechanic in this room, and I don't claim to be a mechanic, okay, there's more to it than that. There's, there's more to it than that, right? If we don't put the right kind of oil in our car or the right kind of fuel in our car, or if you're like the... Um, very cheap budget car rental that we had driving across the country. If you don't fill up the tires correctly, and if, if there's a leaky tire in the moving truck that you're driving for your parents across the country, right? it affects how you drive that vehicle. If we don't maintain the interior of the car, it doesn't matter how much you attend to all the exteriors of driving a car. You could be the biggest safety kid, right? The best defensive driver in the world. And if your car fails on the road, you could put other people in danger, okay? So last week, what we were doing was beginning to think about this inward part of the human person, right? This inward disposition or orientation to God that if we don't get that right first, it doesn't really matter how good we are at driving. If, if the vehicle itself crashes and burns, then we're going to get in a lot of wrecks in the road of life. Uh, psychologist Eric Johnson says it like this, human life is characterized by social interaction, people relating to each other talking and doing things together, yet from a Christian standpoint, without a personal relationship with God, we are fundamentally 
psychologically alone as images of God made for God. Without God, we are relationally compromised. And so this morning we continue in our summer sermon series on anthropology, the study of man. What does it mean to be human? So in one sense, our summer sermon series is anthropocentric, right? Anthropos-centered, man-centered. But if you haven't picked up on it yet, and some of you might be here for the first time this summer, if you haven't picked up on it yet, the beginning and end of Christian anthropology is the man Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was fully God and fully man, and Jesus is recreating us and restoring us to be fully human again. And so last week, we considered humanity's broken orientation to God. We were created to be theocentric, God-centered, positioned underneath God in humble orientation to Him, in relationship to Him, but Here's our present reality. Each one of us is me-centered. We're anthropocentric. We have put ourselves over God, or at the very least, we deceive ourselves. We honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far away. See, here's the gospel paradox that we live in. To become fully human, we have to stop being human-centered. The answer to anthropocentrism is theocentrism. And so last week we began a look at the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is really a story of two competing orientations to God. We focus first on Nebuchadnezzar's orientation to God. That sermon's online if you missed it. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know if it's a good sermon or not, but uh, it's there for your, for your listening. We focused on King Nebuchadnezzar's orientation to God, and he was over God, which ultimately led him in that story to become like a beast, to become like a beast. And so to be a beast in Scripture is to be ruled by your desire with no regard for anyone else, okay? This is what it means to be beastly. Again, uh, Dr. Aaron Johnson says this, Have, having yourself as your psychological center means that everything in your life and soul, your relationships, thoughts, desires, your way of life, every aspect of your life is curved in on the self and organized excessively around your own agenda. Okay, so if you will, open your Bibles with me. And your pew Bibles is page 737. Open your Bibles with me to the story of Daniel again. Why did we start with Nebuchadnezzar last week? All right, I didn't say this last week because it's very important for the, the point this morning, okay? Why did we start with Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you got to put on your thinking hats this morning, okay? Thinking hats, this is, this is a Father Ben thing, all right? Uh, the book of Daniel is structured like a chiasm, okay? And if you don't know what a chiasm is, it comes from the Greek letter chi, which is an X, okay? Uh, it's a fancy way of saying the stuff at the end relates to the stuff at the 
The stuff at the end relates to the stuff at the beginning and vice versa, right? And you, and you go up this X to the center of the book, which is oftentimes the main idea of the chiasm, okay? And so the structure of Daniel, it begins with exile. It begins with exile in Babylon, and it ends with this final return from exile in the last three chapters of this book, okay? And the story continues, okay? It, it goes to a story about Nebuchadnezzar, we talked about this last week, who had a dream about a four-metaled, four-kingdom statue that was crushed, all right? At the end of this book, as you're coming up this chiasm, there's, there's a lot of different interrelated visions about four beasts, which are four kingdoms, right? And so we, we're coming further into the center of this story. In Daniel chapter 3, we have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, right? Fast forward to Daniel chapter 6. We have, we have Daniel in the lion's den, right? There's, there's, there's the same scheming happened by the wise men of Babylon to kill these Jewish people who, who are now given authority over them. And God delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. And he, he delivers Daniel from the lion's den. And then we get to the middle two chapters of the book of Daniel. And these are both chapters about the humbling of a pagan king, right? Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, which we looked at last week. And then in Daniel chapter 5, his son, Belshazzar, his, his humbling, which leads to his death. Okay, And right at the very center of the center of this book is Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. And he ends that restoration with a song to God. And he says that the God in heaven is able to humble those on earth. So this is the main idea of the book of Daniel. So why do we start with Nebuchadnezzar? The first answer that we, that we have this morning is that the structure of, of Daniel invites us to consider Nebuchadnezzar first, right? It can, to consider him first, the very center of this book is about Nebuchadnezzar's humility before God. But not only does the structure of Daniel invite us to consider the story of Nebuchadnezzar first, to humble ourselves before the bad guy in the story, this is the disposition that is itself what God commands. Let me remind you of our reading this morning, Jeremiah 27. So do not listen to those who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and humble themselves before him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. And so we must humble ourselves before Nebuchadnezzar first in this story if we are going to be humble before God. So we started last week with King Nebi, all right, King Nebi. Because this is my story. This is your story. We find passing security in wealth, in the security of the homes that we build apart from God. We look for salvation in ourselves. And so this morning we turn to Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, these teenagers taken from their city, taken from their homes, they are political exiles in Babylon, but 
they were the most secure human beings in this story because they were oriented to God in humility. They experienced the first fruits of God's security on earth as it is in heaven and even in the midst of beasts who threatened to devour them. And so look with me at Daniel chapter 1. I'm not going to tell the whole story again. We're pretty familiar with these, with these stories, this side of the story. And so I'm not going to rehearse the story as much as, as much as I want to pay attention to a few details. And so Daniel chapter 1, in verse 4, we see that the reason that Daniel and his companions were selected is because they were competent with wisdom. They were endowed with knowledge before they got to Babylon, right? So they were wise in the wisdom of Israel. In the scriptures, they were steeped in this story. And what was the king's purpose? The king's purpose at the end of verse 4, he was there to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans, right? And this was his process for three years, it says later in chapter 1. He is restoring these these young kids for three years so that he can use them as his wise men, okay? He's restoring them. But, verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. He resolved that he would not defile himself. Now, this part of Daniel chapter 1 is not particularly about Daniel's diet, okay? No matter what you might have read in a book, okay, there's wisdom here for his diet, but it's not centrally about that. Why is Daniel not eating all of this food that the king has provided him? Why is he, why is he not drinking that? Because he is still living, after three years of re-education, he's still living underneath the law of the Lord in humility before God. And so he says, I can't eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols, don't make me do that. I won't do that. And he has, a, he has a provision, a provision given for him. He does not do that. And so his orientation to God is, is staying intact, right? He's living in a different story in, in Babylon. And so chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar brings this, this dream before Daniel. And what does Daniel say, right? What does Daniel say? He says, stop for a minute. Please don't kill me because all of your wise men didn't understand what was going on here. He goes to his, his, his companions. They go in the secret place of their house before the God of heaven and they seek his mercy. And Daniel is given the dream and the interpretation of the dream, right? His orientation to God is that he wants to submit himself to God's speech. He wants to hear from the Lord and, and recount that to Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And, and we start get this language in Daniel of the God of heaven, right? The God of heaven. This is orientation language. We are lowly on earth, and God is up high in heaven. This is about humility before God. And so uh, Daniel, he recounts this dream, to Nebuchadnezzar, and he gains favor in the sight of the king. All right, let's pause for a second there. Let's pause for a second there. Notice, Daniel in exile is not pouting about being in exile, right? He humbles himself before this pagan king because he is humble before the Lord, 
right? He's humble before the Lord, and so he's not, he's not creating a secret society in Babylon, Right? He is serving this king with all humility. He saves the lives, right? He saves the lives of the other wise men who could not interpret the dream for themselves. So his disposition towards God directly affects his disposition towards his neighbor. Okay? That sounds a little bit like the New Testament, doesn't it? All right. So we continue in the story. Uh, these, these wise men that were just saved by Daniel don't like that Daniel now has authority over them, okay? And so they scheme, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace because they will not bow down to the image. And this, this is what they say in chapter 3, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, okay? So they have humility before this foreign king, but that does not necessarily mean that they obey every command that he gives them, right? Their first, their first orientation, their first line of humility is before God. And so whenever the command conflicts with the law of the Lord, what do they do? They don't give in. They don't bow down. They don't bow down. And so they are delivered through the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar last week. I, I want to say one more thing about this last dream in Daniel 4. This last dream, and I want to read one verse in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, in the last part of verse 19. Daniel comes, he's summoned before Nebuchadnezzar. He's summoned before Nebuchadnezzar to interpret this dream for him again. And he says this to the king. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. You see... A humble heart for Daniel before the Lord means that he desperately loves Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the story from last week. This is not a good guy. Nebuchadnezzar is not a good guy. He's a really terrible, self-centered guy. The, the exact kind of guy that you don't want to be around, okay? He loves him so much that he wishes that the dream that he has would not be about him. And this is a dream about a, a tree that goes over the entire earth and that is cut down because he will not humble himself before the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And what is the law? Jesus did not come to write a new story. He came to finish the story that began in Genesis, that continued with Daniel in Babylon, and that continues with us to today. He came to fulfill the law. And Jesus' restoration project was for Daniel and is for us a reorientation project. Jesus comes onto the scene and he says what? He says, repent, 
Turn. Reorient yourselves. Humble yourself before God. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? How does he respond to this singular question? He says, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Humble yourselves before God. And then he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, the true story of God. God restores us to himself and then restores us to one another in that order and always together. In that order and always together. And so a humble orientation to God must be first because the, the, the gospel is the only reality that can restore a humble orientation to all men. It's the only reality on this earth that can restore a humble orientation to all men, even and especially our greatest enemy. Even Nebuchadnezzar, even President Trump, all of those ungrateful, power-hungry rulers of Babylon or your friendly neighborhood abortion provider. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, only Jesus can fulfill this story. It is only by the Spirit of Christ that we can have restored fellowship with God and, and restored fellowship with one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you... Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, why all of this talk about orientation to God? So if you remember the analogy of the car that I began with, we mistakenly believe that Christians have to be a know-it-all mechanic. We mistakenly believe that we have to have every particular all together to have victory in our lives. Now, this is a lie, and this is why orientation matters. See, it doesn't matter where you start from. If you're a, if you're a broken down jalopy, right? It doesn't matter where you start from. It is, it is your orientation. It is the direction of your heart and your life that matters. Even where you are at now, if your life is in chaos... 
If you are oriented to God in humility, the only thing that matters is the way that you are facing. The way that you are facing. Are you looking up to God with humility or are you looking down on yourself in pride? See, what does it mean to be devoured in Babylon? We, we esteem those who through faith, Hebrews chapter 11, stopped the mouths of lions. We tend to think that Daniel's salvation is centrally about not being murdered by Nebuchadnezzar, not being burned up in a fire, or not being eaten in the lion's den. Hebrews chapter 11 continues, Still others of whom the world was not worthy suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with this sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these were commended for their faith. All of these were commended for their faith. You see, the real slow-burning temptation in Babylon is not death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted God whether or not they were to die in the flame. The real temptation is slow and gradual apostasy. It's three years of re-education in the stories of Babylon. It's the second and the third and fourth generation of exiles who don't know the true story anymore because we stopped telling it. The real temptation is earthly security, not the lion's den. It's three years of living and eating like kings, every day finding more and more security from this world instead of from faith in God. You see, the world, the flesh, and the devil are unceasingly trying to re-educate you, to change your name. So to not be devoured in Babylon is really about being captivated and sustained by the true story of God's redemption. And so I want to end with three points of application. Three points of application quickly. How are we supposed to remain faithful and stay hopeful in exile. The first thing is to bow down. What you do with your body matters. The rest of this summer, fundamentally, is about what we do with our bodies. Father Ben's going to be talking a lot about how we relate to other people, how we think about our bodies. But if we get this orientation to God correct, this humility to God correct first, we recognize that what we do with our body matters. Daniel and his companions served the king, but they obeyed God's law and resolved not to be defiled in Babylon in simple things like what they ate and where and when they prayed, who they bowed down to. Secondly, secondly, what is the bare minimum evidence that you are in a relationship with someone? These last two points are the bare minimum evidence that you are in a relationship with someone, that you are oriented to them, okay? You listen to them, and you speak to them, okay? This is pretty simple stuff, all right? Listen, 
I am ever so slowly learning that the depth of relationship is directly proportional to how much I shut my mouth and listen. Amen. You're not my wife. <laughs> we demonstrate a humble orientation to God when we come to Holy Scripture with humility. When we consider ourselves more lowly than Nebuchadnezzar when we come to the text. And so, to be humble before the Bible, again, does not mean that we know it all. It does not mean that we have all of it together. It means that we come with a disposition of humility before God. We said this this morning, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord that Jesus fulfilled is so much more than rules of national governance listed in Leviticus. The law is the sustaining story of God's kindness to a wayward people. It's the true story of people who would rather remain comfortable slaves in cruel Babylon than walk the path of obedience that leads back home. Okay, So we need to reorient ourselves to this story which is better than the gold of Babylon. It's better than the gold of Babylon. So we listen and we speak to people that we're in relationship. Lastly, we speak. Let me tell you what this disoriented human being up here believes about prayer. In my prideful arrogance, in my prideful insecurity, this is what I believe. I believe that prayer is only for saints, for super-Christians who have it all together. And this is a lie. Prayer is simply bringing our disoriented selves before the merciful God. We not only listen to people that we are properly oriented to, we speak to them. So let us end by going to the Lord in prayer and hear this prayer from Daniel chapter 9. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. Because of the treachery that they have committed against you, because we have sinned against you, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Now therefore, O God, Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, 
O my God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.